Good evening, everyone. I'm very conscious, speaking on an occasion like this, of speaking to people who know at least as much about the subject as I do, and on the whole, rather more. But it never hurts to repeat the obvious. It never hurts to have some opportunity of going back to some fairly basic principles about the practice that we share and simply allowing them to percolate in our minds in a slightly more leisurely, slightly more exploratory way than they might otherwise do. So that's really all I'm hoping to do in this couple of days with you, to go back to some fairly basic principles to do with meditation, and particularly in relation to how our practice is inescapably, irreducibly, something about our bodies. If we simply pause what we're doing in this or in any other context, what is it that we're aware of? We'll hear perhaps a little bit more clearly the ambient sounds. We'll hear the air conditioning in here. We'll hear the shifting of our neighbor, the breathing of our neighbor, the snoring of our neighbor after a while, who knows? <laughs> we'll pick up the little creaks and voices of a building. Very gradually, instead of simply picking up the ambient sound, we begin to pick up the sound of ourselves, the sound of heartbeat, the sound and sense of our breath. We become a little bit more aware of what is in our visual field, perhaps allowing ourselves to take in something that we hadn't spotted. We become aware after a while of pressures in the body, where exactly the bone hits the cushion, where exactly the unexpected bit of tension in the knee or the shoulder swims into focus. We become, in other words, aware of ourselves as inhabiting and receiving. Inhabiting and receiving. We inhabit a place, and it's a place where we are absorbing, what do we call it? Information isn't quite the right word. But we are absorbing, let's call it truth, or let's call it reality. And when we pause and allow ourselves just a bit to let all that happen, I suggest that what's going on is quite simply that we are reacquainting ourselves with what lies at the foundation of all our human thinking and acting. The bare fact that we do inhabit a place and we receive from it. The bare fact that there is no human life that is not inhabiting and receiving. One of the great triumphs of civilization 
is to persuade us otherwise. <laughs> to persuade us that what is real is the actually perfectly physical processes going on inside our brains, which are somehow not really bodily. You know, the brain isn't the body, is it? I mean, surely not. But those processes are, as it were, privileged, lifted up out of all this inhabiting and receiving business. We can somehow cut the umbilical cord and the life of the mind drifts away. And as we all know, there's plenty in some bits of the spiritual tradition that would rather encourage us, us, encourage us to think and react like that. But the point of pausing and just noting our awareness in these ways, noting where we are, what we're sensing. So sometimes put it simply rubbing your hand on the fabric of the chair or the carpet. That tells us once again, what we so readily forget. We belong in this material world. We work from that material base. We know, we understand, we act and we speak because that's who we are and where we are. That's where we learn. Isn't it odd that we sometimes talk about the processes of human learning not least in the education of children, with barely a thought for some of the most basic physical kinds of learning that children experience. What do children learn first? They learn to make recognizable noises when noises are made to them. And eventually, that's what we call language. They learn to crawl across the room without bumping into the chair. They learn that mysterious process of balancing on two limbs, when at a certain point it looks far more convenient to carry on crawling. They learn inhabiting, receiving, and when we speak about the processes of human learning, I don't want us to rush straight away, as some educationalists seem to, to how children learn the things that are get, going to get them through tests and exams. I'd like to pause and think about that sheer, ordinary learning that is simply learning to be a body in a particular setting. And it may be that when our Lord tells us that we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's telling us to get back to that level of recognizing our bodily being in a world where we're learning as bodies. First, the child perhaps experiences the world around as a set of obstacles or frontiers. But gradually, the growing child learns to read and connect, to interpret, remember, analogize. This is like that. And gradually to construct a world, a material world that makes sense, a world the child can move through without disaster. And ideally, that learning, if we understand constructively and honestly what's going on, that sort of learning reminds us 
repeatedly that we are a part of nature, not something separate. Now, there's a whole evening, a whole weekend we could spend talking about the dangers of thinking we're not a part of nature. One of the toxic effects of separating ourselves as bodies from nature is the environmental crisis we now live in. And that's one and not the least of those things which make the practice of contemplation something really rather significant for the future of the human race. No pressure, as they say. <laughs> but let's not underestimate the significance of learning to be human in a particular way that contemplation brings. i park that thought with you for a bit more reflection later. But there's my starting point. We inhabit, we receive. Everything else comes from that. And so if our meditative or contemplative practice is something to do with learning to be more fully and reconcilably human, it has to do with recovering what we fundamentally are in that respect. Now, there's a curious and really unexpected element in some of the teaching of the early Greek fathers like St. Maximus, which bears a little bit on all this. Maximus, in the 7th century, says that the natural and primitive condition of human beings, the condition of Adam in the Garden of Eden, is a kind of synesthesia, as they say. That is, all the senses work together. If you were Adam, or indeed Eve, in the Garden of Eden, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking, now I'm hearing, now I'm seeing, now I'm tasting, now I'm touching. You'd just be inhabiting and receiving. Every bit of you would be responding freely, intelligently, harmoniously to whatever was around you. You would almost, I think this is an image that works, be swimming in your environment rather than spotting bits of it and responding to bits of it. Because there is something, isn't there, about swimming which is immersive. The whole of your organism is responding. Intriguing, isn't it, that this great theologian of the early church sees the natural human condition, the fully reconciled at-home human condition, as being a bit more like swimming than it is like, well, what we normally do. It's an integral awareness of the otherness that surrounds us and the gift that comes through that. An integral awareness, you might say, of the touch of life. An awareness of the touch of life is something which, again, focuses our minds, I think, on the risks of over-analytical, over-controlling, and needless to say, over-anxious responses to the world we're in. And 
we sometimes, there's, there's a technique that one or two teachers I've known have used, which is encouraging you in meditation to imagine the sensation of a leaf falling on water. A touch so silent, so almost unnoticeable, it doesn't make a noise, it doesn't make a splash, but it lands, it connects. And sometimes, again, there are teachers who will very, very gently give you a small prick, the point of a needle, on your hand, just to say, that's the touch of the real. You imagine yourself in a world where the true and the real land, touch, like that, and your response is just the receiving of it. No drama, no work. The leaf falls on the water. That's it. So when we do pause in the work of meditation or contemplation, then part of what happens is, of course, that what we're habitually not noticing has a chance of getting noticed. And sometimes that's where distractions really arise. We think, all I've got to do is shut my eyes and it's going to be quiet. No, it's not. You tune out of certain frequencies in your human receiving and then all the things you've been unwittingly screening out rush in. And that rushing in of the things you've been screening out may be as simple or as basic as noticing certain sense impressions, as I've already hinted. It may be the rising up of certain memories. It may be certain fugues of obsession that come into our minds. We all know those in states of meditation. But that's something to do with the fact that we are taking a necessary, a crucial step, though it may not always feel like it, towards a deeper freedom. What we've suspended is the manic urge to get on top of things, the manic urge to make something of what's coming at us. Make a difference. Or if you can't make a difference, look as if you're making a difference. <laughs> a fund fundamental principle of British politics, as, um, <laughs> as we all know, but let's not go there tonight. <laughs> but the pause, let's just call it the pause, is a pause in the struggle to make a difference. It's not, let's be clear, it's not adopting a policy of being passive but it's stepping back, really, to find out where our action comes from. All the difference in the world there, isn't there? I can resign. I can step back and say, oh, well, I'm not going to do anything. But the pause we're talking about is a pause that allows the doors to open somewhere inside so that we see better where our action comes from. And we have a slightly better chance of distinguishing our action rising from the center of our being, from the merely reactive 
fuss of what the tradition calls the mixture of acquisitiveness and aggression that normally dominates our lives. So when we begin in the pause to be still in body and imagination, <clears throat> what happens is not mystical silence straight away, but mystical bedlam. What happens is a lot of things we've been screening out, pushing in. What happens is an awareness of things we were not aware of, thought we had forgotten or dealt with, and so on and so on. But never mind. The point of the pause is to press the pause button on our urge to make something of where we are to make a difference. It's a pause in which, for a moment, we decide primarily just to be a body, just to be where we are, what we are, just to inhabit and receive. That's where we begin in meditation and in contemplation. And it's as we get a little bit more used to that in body and imagination that we will find, as time goes on, less and less of an, of an impulse to say this or that aspect of the world around is interrupting my silence. This or that bodily sensation is getting in the way. You'll know the advice that is sometimes given if you have an itch when you're meditating. Basically, I think you have two choices. <clears throat> Scratch it and get it over with, <clears throat> or go into it. Let it be. Breathe into it, literally. Breathe into the part of the body that is quivering, itching, demanding attention. Breathe into it. Be there with it. And as time goes on, those moments of itching, discomfort, even mental distraction, are to some extent handled by that simple breathing into, being with. So that as time goes on, as I said, there's less inclination just to say, that itch is getting on my nerves. No, the itch is you. The pain in the buttock is you. Perhaps I'd better phrase that slightly differently. <laughs> <clears throat> the odd bit of fantasy, anxiety, or fugue in your mind is you. And that's all right. You're there precisely to pause so that it can be recognized. I'll say a bit more about recognition tomorrow. But for the moment, what we're describing is a move into something a bit more, to use the jargon, non-dual. Rather than, here am I trying to meditate, and my body is getting in the way, 
it's a move to saying, here am I, a body, an imagination, trying to meditate. And doing that requires me to be breathing into, living into, the actuality that is here, inhabiting and receiving now, inhabiting the itch, inhabiting the pain in the buttock, inhabiting the embarrassing, difficult, distracting memory or fantasy. Breathe into it, and there you are. There you are. There you are. So one of the paradoxes in the work of meditation or contemplation is that on the one hand, we are seeking to draw a distracted, fragmented consciousness back into its center. And on the other hand, we have to face the effects of that distraction and fragmentation and not struggle to ignore them or block them out. And that's quite a tightrope to walk, isn't it? But it's something to do with landing in the body where you are, with inhabiting the moment you're in as a body, not as a soul with an embarrassing lump attached to it. So, moving a little out from that basic, that very basic set of considerations, and as I say, I know you know this, the tradition of contemplation in the Christian world has said in effect that it's only by the honest receiving and acknowledgement of the diverse environment you're in that you come to be attuned to the mystery within it. No shortcuts. You can't say Right, I'm going to go straight through to the middle of things, to the mystery of God, the heart of the world, never mind the details. When the early Greek theologians talk about what they call natural contemplation, physike theoria, the contemplation that takes you into the heart of nature, they are treating that as an absolutely indispensable element in your learning to be attuned to God. If you can receive, truly receive, what the variety of the world around, the variety of our own body is delivering and presenting, if you can receive that with calm and trust and breathing into it, you are actually doing something inseparable from the work of becoming more fully attuned to God because God is the ultimate environment in which we live, the ultimate action from which we receive. And for those early Greek theologians, the model they had in mind was that wherever you turn in the world, the self-giving action of God is there, giving shape and substance and energy to whatever you encounter. In the jargon of the day, Every situation and everything you turn to is sustained 
by a divine word, a logos coming from the one eternal word of God. Wherever you turn, the material world you see and sense is shot through with logos, with the living, communicating energy of the God who is pure action and pure gift. So you can see how much sense it makes to say that as you attend patiently, unfussily, unpanickingly to the environment around you, you are beginning to open yourself to God. As you begin to be the body you are in the place you're in, it is the act of God you are opening up to. What I've done so far is really just to sketch a very basic picture of what happens in the pause, as I've been calling it, and to begin to think of some of those disciplines, and disciplines they are, that hold us steady when we're inclined to wobble with this. When the itch is maddening and our breathing into it is not working very well, when the fantasies and memories are getting out of hand. Not easy, but we learn. We learn simply by those very basic techniques of repetition, self-stilling, the mantra, the awareness of the heartbeat, and above all, the awareness of the breath, and above all, of the out-breath, the out-breath which carries us, strange to say, into the very heart of our bodiliness. The out-breath which, by emptying away our anxiety and our urge to make a difference, I simply opening transforms our inhabiting and our receiving. And if we don't tune into and breathe into that immediate reality, the body I am, the bodily place I sit in, I'm not going to be tuning into and breathing into the ultimate reality of God. a couple more thoughts that may be relevant to this. The first, of course, is that if all this is to happen on a regular basis, if the pause is to be not just an occasional interruption, but a habit of life, we do need to look at our care for our bodies more generally. We need to find ways of bodily living that are less vulnerable to disruption and dysfunction. We do need to ask about habit and diet and all those other things. We need to be aware when we're, as Francis de Salle famously said to somebody, when we're walking too fast and eating too fast and speaking too fast. And we need occasionally to say to one another, 
you know what? Something a little tense here, which needs slowing, loosening, stilling. I speak as somebody who lives a rushed life and is painfully aware of this. I guess I'm not the only one in this room who's conscious of a bit of a gap between the heart of meditation and the pace of daily life. But this is not an exam to pass. This is a life to live. And so if we haven't got it right, if we haven't got the balance as we would wish it, never mind, but don't pretend. I think never mind, but don't pretend is possibly quite a broadly applicable bit of spiritual advice. In other words, don't panic if things aren't going brilliantly, but don't pretend they're going brilliantly. Be honest about where you're not doing it. Keep that in view, gently and clearly, and from time to time ask, so what can I do to ease this, to shift away? So the habits of the body that blunt our awareness, that make it more complicated to inhabit and receive the speed of our lives, the literal and metaphorical addictions to certain kinds of behavior that we have, just keep those in view and keep asking, what can we do to shift, modify, and yes, learn? The discipline sometimes of eating in silence and making sure that you bring an awareness to your eating. It's a small thing, but if you do find yourself eating a meal on your own from time to time, even the proverbial sandwich at the desk, you still have the opportunity of using that space as another kind of pause. Let me taste this. Let me sense it. Let me breathe into it as I eat, taking the time it takes in silence. And it's that return to the body, once again, which makes that moment a moment of genuine pause. And then another sort of theological point. I mentioned one of the great thinkers of the Christian East in the early church, and unsurprisingly I'm going to mention St. Augustine from the Christian West. Because one of the lesser known aspects of St. Augustine's teaching is something you'll find very strongly expressed in his confessions, especially in the seventh book. It's an interesting book for meditators to read. I mean, book seven of the confessions. Because quite a bit of it is actually about meditation. It's about what Augustine was learning as a young man from very sophisticated, philosophically-minded friends, from his Platonist colleagues, who, having read lots of Platonic philosophy, were able to say, yes, the contemplation of the eternally true and good and living is possible once you learn 
to let go of all the impressions of the senses and all the ideas in your mind and just soar into the unity of the undivided reality that is whatever is. And Augustine tells us, fascinatingly, that he tried this and is actually not bad at it. <laughs> the problem he sees, looking back, is that while this spiritual practice was up to a point quite gratifying, what it didn't seem to do was to change the way he lived. And in Book 7 of the Confessions, he describes how very gradually, inexorably, he was, so to speak, pulled back down to earth. He had to realize that before attempting the ascent to heaven, he had to be where he was. That there was no way to the other place except by being in the place where you were. And that if you thought otherwise, the visions of heaven, the visions of eternal truth that came to you in states of deep meditation and contemplation might be very satisfying, but they were not actually going to transform your capacity to see and act and live and relate. What gives his account such fascination is the way in which you can see that he's going through a crisis, you might say, of relationship. He doesn't put it like that, of course. But he's aware that he's living in a context, professional and personal, of deeply dysfunctional relationship. At this particular point, he's struggling with his career which looked very promising and is now apparently hitting the buffers. He's struggling with his personal life. He's just parted from his mistress of 10 years and is obviously feeling it, but he can't quite manage the celibacy stuff. He's awkwardly aware of the competitiveness and the ambition that is still deeply ingrained in him. So it's really quite a relief to go and meditate and get away from all that. Unfortunately, when you've reached the seventh heaven of platonic meditation, the relationship problems don't go away. And so, as I say, bit by bit, he learns to become human. He learns to be earthy. And suddenly, the point, as it were, clicks for him. But of course, the God these Christians worship is the God who is already there ahead of us in the heart of the material world which he's made and in the heart of the human life which is Jesus. And if I try to scale the ladder of perfection to heaven and ignore the fact that heaven has already come here, then actually, you know, we're going to miss each other, God and I, as God comes down to soak through the earth and the human world, then there's not much point in my trying to soar upwards. And in one of the greatest metaphors in his work, he describes it as being the shock of seeing 
literally, the body of Christ at your feet. Christ has, so to speak, flung himself down on the earth. And that's where you meet him. And you have to fling yourself down on the earth too. And he says, when he rises, you rise. But you start with that embrace of the earth you stand on, the flesh you are. And when Augustine writes about humility, as he does in that section of the Confessions, he's most definitely not talking about a habit of self-abasement or self-deprecation. He's as aware as anybody is of the connection in Latin between the word humble, humilis, and humus, the ground. You actually fling yourself down onto the humus in which the seed is sown of life. And that's humility, and that's transforming humility. Being where you are, inhabiting, receiving. So if this model of thinking about the pause and the stillness seems in any sense just a matter of recent discovery or reflection by people in the 20th and 21st centuries who've thought more about meditation, I suspect we might trace it back a bit further. There it is in one of the great minds of early Christianity. A warning against thinking that our practice is a way out from under this embarrassing bodily reality we're stuck with into the free air of heaven rather than the entry into the heart of it, the breathing out from the center of this place, in the depth of which, of course, is already the God who is breathing in and out in us. One last thought, then, for this evening, because, as we've been reminded, it's, it's a Friday night, it's been a long day and a long journey, and your stamina in staying awake is impressive, <laughs> but I don't want to push my luck here. <laughs> Just finally, then, to go back for a moment to St. Maximus and this notion of a synesthetic response what I call the swimming response. What we seek to do and to have done to us in a state of meditation, in the pause, in the stillness, is, using a metaphor not available to Maximus or indeed to Augustine, the adjustment of the frequency we are going to be picking up something different. Picking up, we believe, something a bit more fundamental, a deeper rhythm. You know sometimes when you listen to what seems to be a slightly chaotic piece of music at first hearing, you may very slowly pick up the pattern, the structure underneath it. When the early Greek Christians particularly talked about physique theoria, the natural contemplation, the attunement to the world around, that was what they had in mind. They were feeling and listening for that rhythm, that pulse underneath 
what seemed to be a bit chaotic. And as you know, when you feel for, listen for a rhythm, a pulse, it's not just one of the senses that's involved, is it? Somehow, when you sense a rhythm or a pulse, the body itself responds. Most of you, I'm sure, are better dancers than I am. The bar is extremely low. But the dancer knows that to pick up a rhythm is not just to hear with the ear and organize with the mind and say, oh, that's, you know, that's the beat. It's to feel and to know how you move, where you put your feet, how you slip in and out of relation with another. It's picking up with your whole sensuous reality, where you are, what you're receiving, inhabiting and receiving once again. And, well, of course, to talk about um, the dancing and the stillness is not particularly unfamiliar to those who've read Father John Maine. But that's what it's about, isn't it? And it's about, therefore, the body doing that synesthetic work of response, being there, taking in, attuning, responding, swimming, the whole body reacting and receiving at once. What I hope to do tomorrow is to say just a little bit more about some of the theology of all this that I've touched on tonight. I apologize, as I said at the beginning, for going over ideas and practices which will be very familiar to practically all of you. But as I said, it doesn't hurt just to go back and touch base from time to time because that's what we do every time we meditate. We were reminded earlier this evening that every act, every enterprise of meditation is a new beginning. And it's never too late. I am a rushed, panicked, overworked, physically tense person. Never mind. I can pause. I can not panic about that. I can say, I know I'm rushed and tense and all the rest of it. And because I know that, I know I need to pause. I don't need to get it right straight away, but I need to face it. And that element of inner truthfulness, which is involved here, again, I'd want to say a bit more about tomorrow. Because at the end of the day, what are we being invited to do? We're being invited to recognize the truth of our humanity. The truth that this stuff is me. This stuff is me. God has made me to be this stuff. And that's it. Therefore, to slip around or away from that is a mistake, a betrayal, just a mess. My honesty, my truthfulness requires me just to accept that, as with Augustine, to fling myself down on the wet humus and be there with my hands and my face in the mud, joyfully. <laughs> because that's where it starts. That's where the receiving, the gift, 
comes through. Nowhere else but here.